Well, now to A Foreign Affair on Saturday Extra, our regular segment that helps you, I hope, make sense of the fascinating events, people and issues of our region. To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now, that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Well, this month, diplomatic minefields ahead. As a former Taiwanese president visits China, the first to do so since 1949, while at the same time, Taiwan's current president, Tsai Ing-wen, is transiting through the United States en route to and from Central America. Now, she's expected to meet the Speaker of America's House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy. I wonder if he'll have time to meet her. Plus, more visits. We'll look at the meeting between Japan's Prime Minister Kishida and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev, and that was the first visit by a Japanese leader to a war zone since 1945. So while we're on firsts, I'd like to welcome now Roger Huang, a senior lecturer in the School of Security Studies at Macquarie University. He's previously worked for the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan, which is in power now, and academic Academia Sinica in Taiwan. Hi, Roger. Hi. And Jade Guan, a senior lecturer in strategic studies at Deakin, who's an expert on soft power, which is really just the issue we'd like to explore. Hello there, Jade. Hello, Geraldine. And a warm welcome back to Rory Metcalf, the head of the National Security College at the ANU. Hello there, Rory. Hi, Geraldine. Now, let's start with an explainer. Uh, Roger, who is former President Ma Yingzhou and how significant would you say is his visit to China? So Ma Yingzhou is the president of the Republic of China, which is the official name for Taiwan. He was a president from 2008 until 2016. And when he left office, it was actually quite a polarizing and unpopular uh, political figure. Um, he has tried to make his mark uh, as, you know, he has been consistent, seen as a Chinese nationalist. He honestly believed that Taiwan and China believes in kind of the same nation. So this is quite a significant uh, trip because, as you've pointed out, this is the first president of the Republic of China, Taiwan, that has been to uh, China, right, um, since 1949 after the Chinese Civil War. Um, and Ma has really used this trip to promote his uh, political ideology, um, which is, again, that China and Taiwan belongs to the Chinese, same Chinese nation, which is not really popular mainstream opinion in Taiwan. And this has a lot of political ramifications, even though he claims this is a non-political trip. Uh, you know, he has really made a connection, kind of an ancestral, cultural, political, historical connection between China and Taiwan. He has also brought a number of youth in this trip, trying to to promote this idea that we have a historical family connection and now we need to pass on this to the youth to kind of engage and work with one another. Um, the timing is sensitive because it's coming during the Qingming Festival. This is a big festival that's observed by most Chinese, which is a tomb sweeping where you pay your respect to your ancestors. So again, he's kind of showing his roots is from China. He's going back so to like China. So it's ethnic roots, not nationalist roots sort of thing. Yes, but when it comes to ethnicity and nationality, it's very complicated, right? Mm. I mean, from Ma Yingzhou's perspective, he is a Chinese nationalist. He really believes in the idea that there's one China. Now, what he doesn't agree with is whether it's the Chinese Communist Party's version, the uh, People's mm. Republic of China, or the Taiwanese version, which is the Republic of China. It gets very complicated, but I'll just leave it at that for now. 
So it's not a softening of relations, well, is it, between the nations? I mean, it's a personal visit, but with a very definite political message. Now, there are elections next year, aren't there? Vital elections in Taiwan. But he he's not standing or anything. Right. So I believe this is a really calculated political move. Again, the timing, some people said it's just kind of coincidence and sure there might be a coincidence to that. But from a Chinese perspective, they knew what was coming. They knew they were going to um, basically poach a Taiwanese uh, diplomatic ally, Honduras, around the same time that Ma Joe's visiting China. The tomb sweeping uh, timing, again, is very, very symbolic. Again, kind of connecting that family, blood, cultural connection. Yes, I think I've seen him standing in front, sorry to interrupt you, of an important mausoleum in Nanjing where he called for people on both sides to work together for peace because he said, we are all Chinese. That's right. So this is a very, uh, it's political theatre, right? It's been very carefully chosen where he's actually visiting in China. Mm. And all the major places if chosen have kind of a connected history where both the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang, or the Chinese Nationalist Party in Taiwan, believe in the same kind of historical narrative, this, the mm. revolution against the Qin Empire, right? So that's why he was mm. he's in Wuhan. Um, going to the mausoleum Sun Yat-sen, who was a political philosopher that both the Chinese Communist Party and the K AMT uh, believe was a hero for the quote unquote a new China, right, a new nation. So, Jade, how do you see this then? Mm. So, this is very interesting. Initially, when I noticed this news from Taiwanese media, I thought uh, the mainland Chinese uh, People's Republic of China government must welcome uh, former President Ma's visit very much because uh, as a uh, as Dr. Huang just uh, pointed out, that uh, he's uh, very much uh, engagement uh, advocacy with uh, mainland China and uh, believes into one China concept, although he has different interpretation who represents uh, China. But uh, still, I think uh, Beijing likes this concept of one China. Uh, so I think that this... Uh, is a mass visit will be very symbolic and welcomed by Beijing. However, in the last uh, a couple of days, when I searched uh, Chinese news media, and I noticed there's, there has been lukewarm coverage about his visit. So like uh, People's Daily, Xinhua News, their, uh, you know, parties, mouthpiece, there were not much coverage about his uh, visit. So I, I, I thought, oh, that's really surprising. Mm-hmm. But I didn't notice that uh, Song Tao, now the director of uh, Taiwan Affairs Office of the State Council of the PRC, uh, met Ma in Wuhan. So that, uh, that is significant because that's mm-hmm. the office in charge of uh, uh, Taiwan Affairs and Song Tao uh, is the I think I believe in uh, number two uh, guy in uh, shaping and influencing uh, mainland China's Taiwan policy. 
Well, that is interesting. How um, would you say, Roger, it's being received within Taiwan, this very vibrant democracy called Taiwan? Yeah, maybe let me just, uh, I think, clarify a little bit of what I think Ma is trying to do before kind of directly addressing that question. I think there's actually a few things that Ma is planning to do with this trip. It is a very calculated political move. One, I think it's really to, for, from his perspective, right, to, to address the uh, upcoming uh, election in Taiwan next year, the presidential and legislative election. So from his perspective, this the fact that he can go to China demonstrates that his party, the KMT, is still the party that can bring potential peace and stability. I think this is a good faith argument where Ma personally believe that his personal diplomatic maneuvers will help bring peace and stability between uh, Taiwan and China. I don't subscribe to that view, but I think it is a good faith argument from Ma. Now, secondly, I think he's really trying to um, built his own personal legacy, right? He was also the first uh, Republic of China president who met uh, Xi Jinping when he was basically the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and the so-called president of the People's Republic of China in Singapore. So all of this is a continuation of Ma's kind of personal legacy saying, look what I can achieve to try to bring the two Mm. uh, Chinese kind of different political entities together again. Right. So it's a personal legacy. Mm. And lastly, I think it's also to try to kind of return his own influence over his uh, party, right? He's been out of office. He's not got any really f- formal roles with the party. So it's quite also constraining the Chinese uh, Nationalist Party, the KMT, of what they can do with their China policy, saying we should not detract from our kind of original mm-hmm. ideology, which is we are predominantly a Chinese Nationalist Party. And we're not a Taiwan-centric party. But all of that I said, I think um, no, knowing how the Chinese Communist Party operate with the United Front Work Department, um, this is really more of a diplomatic or propaganda victory from the Chinese side where they have been using these, right? But for, it is being reported inside Taiwan, is it? It, it is definitely <laughs> being covered in Taiwan. It is major news in Taiwan. I think there's some international attention. Um, I think it's very polarizing. Uh, again, depending on your political uh, persuasion, some people have seen this as a victory because Manjo was successful in using certain terms that are usually censored. Um, in China, so calling himself the, the president of the Republic of China, calling himself the president of Taiwan, these things would be censored in China and is still censored. Yeah. So when he had been using kind of really low-key uh, opportunities to say this, it will be picked up by the Taiwanese media in particular. And of course, the Chinese media will censor all these sections. Very interesting. Now, Rory Metcalf, uh, meanwhile, we have this big trip to Central America by the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, and, and she was met with protests and, and loud supporters in New York and She's expected to meet, I think, the US Speaker. And meanwhile, uh, President Tsai is due to meet Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, early next week. Now, how significantly do you regard this? Well, I think it's good that we're having this discussion because it, it really points to the, you know, the complexity and the sophistication of, of Taiwan as, mm. a, uh, as a democracy, as a, as a self-ruled democracy, whatever the, you know, the debates about, uh, about one China or otherwise. And I think... Uh, you're right. President Tsai's visit to uh, to the American continent is um, is very important, uh, including the transit through the United States, which is being carefully but meaningfully, I think, managed by the Biden administration, uh, so that there'll be, if you like, just enough contact without without signalling state recognition. I would add one other element, and that is that uh, there was Taiwanese participation this week in President Biden's uh, Global Summit of Democracies. 
and that's uh, a pretty significant message. The, obviously, the involvement was not at leadership level. It, uh, I understand it's uh, official and, and even ministerial. But even so, I think there's a growing awareness in much of the democratic world that in terms of a, a, of a democratically ruled society, uh, you know, across everything from things that Australians would hold dear, such as Indigenous recognition and uh, LGBTQI plus rights and so forth, um, Taiwan is to be taken seriously. So this really uh, complicates things, of course, to US-China relations, but I think it adds to that web of recognition that Taiwan is not simply some some placing in relations between the US and China. It's an entity of its own. And I think she's going to give a speech at the Reagan Library, isn't she, which which is seen as quite symbolic because she's going to position out, outright Taiwan as a nation at the front line of the clash of democracy versus authoritarianism, which, of course, the Americans will love to hear. Uh, I don't know quite where it takes us in terms of uh, promoting peace. Yeah, look, I, I think, I mean, my, my own... Uh, sense of where uh, President Tsai's come from in recent years is that she's not, you know, she's not overly inflammatory. She's she's careful in the way that she pushes the boundaries. I think the you know the claim that this will lead somehow to a uh, an outright declaration of independence or that simply you know she's in the business of provoking China, I think is is not true. But certainly she, understandably, she's trying to expand the diplomatic space for Taiwan to the largest extent possible without crossing certain certain thresholds. And all of this comes against, of course, the context of the uh, the coercion and the intimidation we've seen in recent years. Uh, of course, the controversies from uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year, but also the, um, the very clear drumbeat of China's military modernisation and intimidation. So she is effectively fighting for the life of her democracy and doing it in a way that strikes a sufficient balance. Now, whether this is understood and followed closely in Australia, uh, I don't know, but I do think that, for example, even across our business community now, there's a recognition that Taiwan matters as an economy and that anything that destabilises the uh, the peace of the Indo-Pacific is going to end in tears for all of us. Uh, let me just ask, Roger, how do you think um, Taiwanese will see her her trip? Yeah, um, so I just want to add to a point that Rory made, which is about Tsai Ing-wen's kind of way she's managed uh, international relations and also cross-strait. Um, so Kevin McCarthy had indicated he wanted to visit Taiwan as the current uh, House Speaker. And it was actually a Taiwanese side, if we are to believe these reports have come out, that it's Tsai Ing-wen and her government, which actually said last half of the initial meeting in California first, as a way not to overly provoke China. So there has been that kind of what Roy was saying, that has been really kind of balanced and sensible way that Tsai has approached international uh, relations from, you know, when it comes to Taiwan's diplomatic space. Now, Tsai's visit, it's officially a visit to her uh, Taiwan's uh, diplomatic allies, Guatemala and Belize. I think we should mm-hmm. mention the countries that she's actually formally visiting. And the U.S. part of the trip is supposed to be just for transit, right? And this is actually not something that's unique because um, this regularly takes place with any president um, from Taiwan. So Mind Zhou has done this himself, as well as previous presidents, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, bin etc., where they go and visit some Central South Latin America country um, allies via the U.S. And this, I believe, would be uh, Thai's seventh visit oh, that's right. that's what I heard. Uh, to, to the US. So again, it's nothing actually that's 
out out of ordinary. It's because of the context has changed, where China has escalated a kind of you know gray zone tactics and hostility against Taiwan, and now again threatening, saying if Tsai meets Kev, uh, Kevin McCarthy, then they will elevate this hostility. They'll see this as a provocation. So it is really China that's pushing the envelope, right? It's trying to make Taiwan pay for things that has been already normalised in the past. Can I just tell uh, people uh, that uh, Rory Medcalf's with us, Roger Huang from Macquarie University and Dr Jade Guan, and we're doing our uh, April Foreign Affair and uh, really trying to dig a bit deeper into the Taiwan discussion. Rory, you want to say something? Um, Look, I was just going to reinforce that situation of Taiwan in the larger regional order in the Indo-Pacific, I think, but despite all of the you know the hot air in recent years and certainly the particularly the, the Chinese saber rattling and the, and the concerns about risk of war I think that it's incredibly healthy that we're having a conversation that actually places the uh, the rights and dignity and uh, and lives and prosperity of Taiwanese people at the center of the conversation it's you know 23 24 million people a society the size of Australia's uh, and I think that in the years ahead, because this is going to remain a flashpoint in regional security, understanding the perspective from Taipei is going to be vitally important and understanding the very complex politics of that vibrant democracy, uh, I think, will be key. I'd like to know from all of you, I must say, whether you think there is any genuine dialogue occurring, though, between China and Taiwan, whether there are people working at an unofficial level to de-escalate the serious tensions or at least keep channels open or just get away from absolute uh, statements. And I just wonder what you think, Rory. Is, Is there something useful underway to make sure we don't sort of just literally sleepwalk into war? Um, I couldn't comment on uh, the, the level of dialogue that's going on because, of course, um, although there may be all sorts of unofficial contact and a lot of it is uh, you know, in the so-called second track or through business communities or elsewhere, one of the huge challenges there, and I, I would certainly defer to, uh, to Roger and, and, and Jade on this, their, their, their closer understanding of, of that part of the region. But from my perspective, one of the impediments there is that uh, dialogue uh, across the Taiwan Strait uh, is, is often interfused with, um, with, with political interference and with, um, with channels for whether it's the United Front or other, other avenues of, of, of China trying to influence uh, the political outcomes in Taiwan. But dialogue in terms of, I guess, what interests me, which is military confidence building, I sure as hell hope that is happening because if China is using military risk as a kind of lever of international influence, it's trying to create that sense that we've got to effectively accept Chinese annexation of Taiwan or other, or else there will be military escalation, then you know, we're in a whole world of pain. Whereas, in fact, of course... Chinese and Taiwanese forces are up against each other every day and try to understand and communicate the rules of the road to prevent incidents out of hand should be front of mind as it should be for really any any players. Uh, what do you think, Jade? Is dialogue underway? Uh, as far as I, I'm aware that uh, since uh, Tsai uh, came to the office uh, that uh, she does not uh, recognise the 92 consensus, which is, you know, uh, there is only one China and uh, Taiwan is a part of it. So, you know, that really, um, you know, frustrated and angered even Beijing. So for that fact, I believe uh, all the official dialogue 
has been shut down, um, maybe there is still business sectors, there are some like a communication going on, but I think officially there, there hasn't been uh, talking much or talking just past each other. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I gather there are sort of half a, a million um, Taiwanese living in Shanghai. Like there's a, there's a lot of Taiwanese living on the mainland, Roger. I mean, there's so much, to be perfectly honest, we do not know about Taiwan. You know, really, it's very crude, I think, our understandings of Taiwan. Yeah, so there's been a large uh, Taiwanese population in China really since the opening of economic relations in the 1990s and so, so on and so forth. But that relationship has also really changed because China was for many, many years seen as an economic opportunity by the business community in Taiwan. And that, I think, has changed, especially since COVID, right? I mean, you have also the U.S.-China trade wars. And all of this has led up to actually, from what I understand and what I've heard from you know some in the business community, that they're actually far less confident uh, with the Chinese business environment. So there is being um, Taiwanese business people returning to Taiwan or moving their operations to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, mm. Cambodia, etc. So there's that kind of breakaway from drift. that right, that drift. Um, as for kind of your earlier question about dialogues, I think um, Jade covered it quite nicely. Officially, um, the People's Republic of China has broke off any official communication with the Taiwanese government since 2016. Um, unofficially, China has never ceased to try to quote-unquote communicate, but it's a one-way communication where there's been political subversion, influence. They've literally used anyone from academics to the business community to even gangsters, right? It's actually quite a big thing that they have supported gangsters in Taiwan to kind of promote the Chinese agenda. Um, they've also used religious groups, uh, journalists, etc. So that has always been going on in more of a one, mm-hmm. one-way communication. It's really more of a propaganda than a communication, to be honest. But as far as I know, I don't really think there's actual military confidence building measures and any of that in place. That's, mm-hmm. that's my understanding. Well, let's listen to um, a grab from an excellent podcast I'm going to recommend to listeners uh, who are interested in China. It's called Chinese Whispers. It's made by The Spectator in the UK. It's hosted by a woman called Cindy Wu. And on a recent episode, she interviewed a man called Zhou Bo, a retired senior colonel of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, who began service in 1979. He was a very eloquent speaker, I must say. Here he is suggesting that soft Soft power and diplomacy are the only sensible options, as he puts it, for China and Taiwan. Taiwan issue, this is, of course, needs to say, this is a, a domestic issue. But I genuinely believe that uh, we have uh, utmost sincerity and would make utmost efforts to try to get reunified peacefully. Because what is the use of uh, Taiwan that is totally battered and shattered for us? Uh, let alone there are so many people on the island. Uh, it, it, so the cost would be too high for us. Now, that's um, uh, a very interesting interview. I commend to you. There's a lot more there, actually, in, including a very interesting analysis of Australia's submarine deals as part of AUKUS. It's a, a, a podcast called Chinese Whispers. It's made by The Spectator in the UK. And I might add, he went on to say, but we absolutely do see China and Taiwan as one. <laughs> that was his very much his summary at the end of his uh, very eloquent analysis. Now, look, maybe we could move to another series of visits that Rory wanted to discuss. Japan's Prime Minister Kishida 
has visited India and Ukraine, and that's the first visit by a Japanese leader to a war zone since 1945. How significant is this, Rory? Yeah, look, that um, I, I think it's uh, it's one of several you know really extraordinary events and visits we're seeing on the global diplomatic circuit at the moment. I would I would just wind back a little bit and uh, note that senior senior Colonel Jobo uh, is someone who I've known for a long time and he's an extremely smooth operator. Oh yes. <laughs> um, so I, I would take some of his assessments um, in in context, but. Look, moving to um, Japan and to uh, Kishida, you know, Japan is also really trying to spread its wings on the global uh, diplomatic circuit at the moment. I think Kishida is at pains to emphasise that um, his uh, earlier predecessor, Abe, doesn't have all of the ideas or all of the the activism when it comes to Japan as a strategic player. Uh, Kishida is interested in, for example, cultivating Japan's relations with the global south. And, of course, a lot of this is about balancing Chinese power. But the visit to Ukraine was important because it showed a willingness by Japan to engage with the realities of war mm. and the realities of the use of force in the international system in ways that Japanese leaders would have shied away from, understandably, for many, many years, for, for, for decades. I also would put it in a context of how, um, how troubled the Japanese are by Russia's aggression, because, of course, don't forget, Russia has a territorial dispute, a militarised territorial dispute with Japan too, uh, the Kurile Islands. Japan's very worried about the China-Russia relationship and is seeking to build partnerships everywhere. But for Japanese citizens to see Prime Minister Kishida in a war zone in Kiev, standing by Zelensky, I think um, is something of a, a turning point in uh, Japan's worldview. Just very interesting and look very much an addendum to that uh, Rory, uh, they believe that that Russia-China uh, partnership, which is a most unusual one if you look at history, they think that'll last do they? You think the Japanese are really troubled by it? Well I mean I think we all watch it with that certain degree of scepticism where we recognise that any any self-righteous xenophobic Russian uh, Putinist uh, patriot is going to not want to play second fiddle to China. But the reality is that Putin is putting Russia in precisely that position. And yet that seems to be uh, something he's quite willingly doing. So Russia and China as a sure a marriage of convenience, but a very troubling alignment of authoritarians on the world stage. That does spook the Japanese. They take it seriously. And they also see it, frankly, as an opportunity to build common cause with the Europeans and to remind mm. the Europeans to worry about China too. So it's, it's, it's pretty smart diplomacy on Tokyo's part. And look, finally moving to a different part of the world, in Sweden, the foreign ministry summoned Russia's ambassador after a Facebook post to describe Sweden as, quotes, a legitimate target for Russian retaliatory measures if it joined NATO, if, you know, Sweden's NATO bid has been stalled since last May. And of course, we've recently had the ratification for Finland's full admission to NATO. I mean, I wonder, Roger, whether it's getting... That way that, you know, NATO's a club everybody now needs to join. 
Um, this has broader implications, right? I mean, this is a whole global shift, right? You already have Rory talking about uh, the Japanese prime minister visiting a war zone, uh, which, by the way, the same time Xi Jinping was in Moscow, right, shaking hands with Putin. So it's very clear. Um, obviously, Russia extraordinary conjunction, wasn't it? Really <laughs> incredible. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, Finland that's just now, which had, of course, that uneasy relationship with Russia for many, many years, especially during the Gold War, where it wasn't exactly either pro-Soviet Union or, quote-unquote, the free world with the U.S., but now it's kind of been driven to that kind of NATO mission, right? And Sweden, obviously, is eager to join, um, being blocked by Turkey, as far as I understand. So... Looking at that broader context, and I hesitate to use this, I don't really believe in the clash of civilization kind of arguments that have been especially popular in the last few decades, and many have also discredited that argument. But I do see that there is this kind of two polarizing kind of forces emerging, mm-hmm. re-emerging, right? You, you know, I mean, perhaps it's Cold War 2.0, where you have exactly that kind of the if we want to believe in the Western liberal democracies versus the rise of authoritarian powers with China and Russia being clearly the representation of that um, authoritarian power. It is a bit simplistic view, but I think um, just to draw back to Taiwan, which is something I'm more comfortable to talk about, Taiwan has kind of strategically utilized that language, right? And mm-hmm. Taiwan has, you know, written to, I think, its foreign policy and her ministers, Joseph Wu, for example, has been very actively in a lot of international mainstream media portraying Taiwan as this is not just a Taiwan-China issue, it is an issue where we are, yeah, we are in the front line of democracy against this global resurgence of authoritarianism. I mean, just very quick final, in a way, from you, Rory. Another thing I've seen in terms of this discussion, um, backing up what Roger's saying, is that a lot of the people involved in Cold War negotiations had lived through and often served in war. And they knew what the ghastliness of war what a cataclysm it was. You can't say that at the moment. It's quite a concerning issue that a lot of people are sort of speaking, you know, almost debating it as if it's a sort of a nice debating point and it's much, much more than that. Yeah, look, I'd, I, I would build on that a little bit just to sort of go back to that Finnish example because, you know, I think that if you're looking for historic turning points, Finland joining NATO now is one of those turning points. If you look at Finnish history, um, it's something I know, I guess, partly through the fact that my, my extended family through, uh, through marriage are Finns. My wife's a Finnish Australian, and I, I've got to know that country very well. For many years, we would never have expected that Finland would join NATO, that the country that basically, like it or not, gave rise to the term Finland, Finlandization during the Cold War would become a steadfast treaty ally of the United States and NATO uh, facing off Russia. They're doing that because of the existential concern that Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine has caused. Um, The Finnish Prime Minister herself was in Australia only last year telling us don't be dependent on an authoritarian power. Uh, And she didn't, in our case, I think, mean Russia. And although it's true that current generations of leaders haven't lived through war, they're now seeing the effects of it firsthand in Ukraine. And that, I think, is not bringing about, you know, neutral um, behaviour or, or some kind of capitulation, it's actually bringing about a kind of steadfastness. Now, we need to sort of somehow tie that to the war aversion that I think did keep the, the Cold War cold. It's going to be an incredibly difficult diplomatic balancing act in the years ahead, but it will affect us all. Look, thank you all very much indeed. Rory, J- uh, Jade and Roger, I do appreciate all your thoughts. Thanks, Geraldine. 
Thanks for having us. Thank you. Rory Medcalf, Head of the National Security College at the ANU, Roger Huang from Macquarie University and Dr Jade Guan from Deakin University. And um, your thoughts most welcome. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.